0: Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where we bring you conversations with experts in fields related to urban farming and dive a little deeper into some important issues of our times. Bill McDorman is the executive director of Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance in Ketchum, Idaho. He got his start in the bioregional seed movement while in college in 1979 when he helped start Garden City Seeds. In 1984, he started Seeds Trust High Altitude Gardens, a mail-order seed company he ran successfully until he sold it in 2013. He authored the book Basic Seed Saving in 1994. Then in 2010, he and his wife, Bell Star, created Seed School, a nationally recognized week-long training. Bill is a passionate and knowledgeable presenter who inspires his audiences to learn to save their own seeds. Welcome, welcome, Bill. How are you? I'm doing well, Greg. Thanks for being here.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: So we're going to jump right in, and we're going to be talking this evening on extreme seed saving. (laughs) I'm just going to turn it over to you, Bill, and I'm going to have to kind of jump along for the ride as we go.
1: Well, where would we get the idea of extreme seed saving? I think it has something to do with the extreme weather we've been (laughs) experiencing. As I look across the country and around the world, it just seems maybe they're just getting better with the weather reporting. And we're seeing all these things that always happen, but it just sure seems like things are an extreme level. And so as seed savers, there's some tricks and some things I've learned along the way that might be able to help us. I mean, of course, if things get too extreme, man, it gets really, really tough, but there are some things we can do. And so, one of the things to think about is that if you, you know, we're trying to save seeds, that means that those seeds, you know, came from flowers, and those flowers were there for pollination. So pollination is a key part of this whole thing. It's what we teach in seed school about how to control that pollination is really one of the greatest tools we have for uh, improving the varieties that we're trying to save seeds from. But that's a whole other topic. But What I want to do is just for a second, talk about the pollination process itself. So if you think about it this way, that pollen kernels are actually seeds. They're like a miniature, in most cases, somewhat simplified version of a seed. And the stigmatic surface, we call it, the place where the pollen lands to initiate sexual reproduction, that's like a garden. It's like a well-composted garden bed. In fact, it's the one that the the pollen grain has to hit if it's going to grow into a plant. And you say, so that sounds kind of strange, but, you know, corn is probably uh, the most visual example, and you can find pictures of this. But when a pollen grain lands on a corn silk, what happens is that it actually starts to grow a little root. It's like a simplified process of growing a small plant. And that little root grows all the way down the corn silk and into the ovary, which is where the corn seed is going to be someday. And so that's why if uh, pollination does not take place, if that little pollen grain doesn't hit every single silk and, and have enough time to grow a little root down into the ovary and exchange material you know, chromosomal material, then sexual reproduction does not take place. The ovary does not grow and you have a little blank spot in your corn cob. And so the key for us to think about here tonight, when we're talking about extreme gardening, is realizing that this kind of a garden with the pollen grain being the seed also has some requirements. And one of those is that it's got to be the right temperature for this process to take place. If it's too hot If it gets up into the upper 90s and over 100 degrees, a couple of things happen. One is that the pollen grains can dry out and die before they actually get to the silk. The silks can begin to dry out. And even if the pollen grain is good and it hits a good silk, the process may not take place because it's just too warm for pollination to complete itself. And this is true in all plants. And usually, so a generalization here is that the temperature for successful pollination is usually way inside the boundaries of the temperatures it would take to actually grow the plant that will come later when you plant a seed in the ground. So let me give you some examples. One of the things we learned quickly when I lived in Idaho for years was that nighttime temperatures at my place at 6,000 feet would get down to below 40 degrees at night. And I was, year after year, I was growing pepper plants, and I was never getting any peppers. And I couldn't figure out why. Well, it turns out that the pollination process in peppers doesn't really work if the temperature gets below 40 degrees. Now, we we would have maybe an 80 or 90-degree frost-free season some years, so it wouldn't get below 32, but it was pretty rare, especially back in the day, for it to get above 40 in the night for a nighttime temp. Therefore, we had these really luscious-looking pepper plants, but we never had any peppers because pollination never took place. It was just too cold at night. So when we learned that, we could do a couple of things. One was to provide some sort of passive solar storage, rocks or something in and around the plants to help it stay above 40 at night, some kind of covering just at night to help the temperatures stay higher. And then the other thing we found out is that theres a, it turns out there's a genetic anomaly that allows the pollination process to take place in peppers below 40 degrees, clear down to freezing. And so there were a couple of new varieties of peppers that were, had been advertised at the time that um, had this trait. And once we started growing them, we were able to get peppers, even though it was getting cold at night. So that's an example of extreme seed saving. Thinking about the problem and realizing that we could fix it, yeah.
0: And well, and it's not surprising because on the other end, we run into the same problem with tomatoes on the heat.
1: That's true. You would know that, and you could speak to that. So, you know, at what temperature, Greg, do your tomatoes stop producing tomatoes in the, in the mid-summer?
0: Well, I'm going to say in the June time frame. And, you know, in June, our temperatures can get up as high as 121 degrees, although that's rare. But it's nothing for us to be getting temperatures at the end of May and into June at 110 or 112
1: yeah, that you know, if you read the literature, and and the best articles I read about this were from Great Britain, and they said even 80 degrees. There are lots of varieties of tomatoes that don't like the temperature to get above 80 degrees, or wow. pollination will just won't, won't take place. Now, my own experience is that's probably closer to 90. You know, it may have something to do with humidity, too. There's lots of variables here, but for sure, you know, almost every gardener i met a Phoenix just tells me, when it gets over 100, forget it. Right. You know, we're just not getting tomatoes.
0: Yeah, exactly. The
1: tomato plants, the tomato plants will survive. And once things start to cool down again, lots of times, you know, those same plants will start going through another bloom and start having tomatoes again. And it was just uh, the problem of it being too hot.
0: When so the problem, what
1: can you do? The, well, well, so
0: before we skip over this, the problem that we run into here in Phoenix in the fall, and this is why I tell people to grow tomatoes in February, March, April, May, and June. That's the best time to plant them because what happens is is it doesn't cool down until October. So if you can get your tomato plant to live through the summer, through shading and watering and like that, it starts setting tomatoes again in October, which gives you green tomatoes in January.
1: Right. They never, the day length is shortened and they never really get what they need to. Right. Wow. Yeah. Well, double problem. Okay, well, what, if you think about what happens with tomatoes, they are mostly what we call self-pollinating plant. In many of the uh, newer varieties, especially of tomatoes, the stigmatic surface, which receives the pollen, doesn't even stick out beyond what they call the anther cone ever. And, or if it does, it's only after it's brushed by its own pollen. I mean, it's a physical, the physical flower ensures almost every time that tomatoes pollinate themselves. And this is a process they've worked out, and, and they're happy with it. If you look at it very carefully, though, there's still anthers being produced, or and those anthers are the things producing the pollen. And there's a little itsy-bitsy space between that and the stigmatic surface. They're really close, and they're all in the same little cone, but the pollen just can't get over this stigmatic surface unless the plant is shaken just a little bit. Just a little bit of breeze usually is all that it takes in order to do this. I noticed this when I walked into some commercial greenhouses that were growing tomatoes. And they had huge fans, one whole wall of huge fans blowing on it. And they said that was to help with pollination. If they could shake the plants a little bit with the wind from these fans, then then they would get pollination. So what we started realizing is that even in Phoenix, so what's your nighttime, uh, your early morning temperature there now, Greg?
0: Um, Probably you know, like, 88, like to, 88 to 92 this time of year, which is July. Eight,
1: wow. Okay, 88 to 92. So if we do, in fact, have tomatoes that can set fruit up to 90, and mm-hmm. I've seen that happen over and over again, then what you want to do is get up at the crack of dawn, at the coldest part of the day, when that pollen is still good and the process could take place, and walk out through your tomato plants and shake them. Shake them with your hands. turns out that even in Phoenix in most places, you'll get a breeze during the day, but it'll only happen after it's too hot. Yep. And that's the real reason that your tomatoes won't set fruit. And so this doesn't work all the time, but we, I've personally greatly increased the amount of tomatoes I can get here in Cornville. And my nighttime temperatures get down in the 70s. And so I even have a better chance than you do.
0: Nice. You want to hear a funny story? So about, f- yeah. About I'm going to say about 12, 15 years ago, my friend Jen Nelkin, who founded and runs Gotham Greens in New York City, they put they have over... Two hundred thousand square feet of greenhouses on office buildings in New York City and Chicago. I think. In fact, the the Whole Foods. I,
1: I met your friend. Yeah, I saw a presentation. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Phenomenal.
0: I, exactly. So. She was doing something called the science barge in New York City when she was there. I, again, I, I'm thinking it's about 15 years ago. And it's a barge. And part of, and they grew, they put a greenhouse on the barge. They put solar panels on the barge. They put a water machine that would, uh, you know, get, make the salt water fresh to water everything. So it was supposed to be a totally sustainable greenhouse on a barge. And what they found was that the rocking of the barge pollinated the tomatoes wow yeah isn't that funny that's, <laughs> that's all you need amazing. yeah that's all you need
1: yeah 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 there you go rock and roll <laughs> well so those are tricks so you know if you're having trouble because of heat or extreme cold and your plants are there and you're not getting the fruit that you expect You may look into this a little bit, you know, and look into other things. As I, as we talked about, we know this is true for tomatoes and peppers. We know that corn pollen you know, at 90 to 100 degrees, dies really quickly once it comes off the tassels. Mm-hmm. Almost all hand pollination for corn takes place early in the morning with fresh pollen. By noon, it's over. All the pollen's dead. And if those silks haven't gotten um, pollinated, then it's um, sometimes they'll last another day. But it's a, it's amazing how so much of pollination, same with squash, where the people that do pollination and squash always get up early in the morning to take care of that also before the heat of the day. So... Those are just some tricks to help you if your weather is getting extreme.
0: Yeah, here's, a, here's another pollination question for you. So somebody has a squash in their backyard and they get little teeny squash that are about two inches long and then they dry up and fall off. What's going on?
1: Aha. Uh-huh. It means, uh, in many cases, it means that they have not been pollinated. Right. If you look at a squash a squash plant or a melon plant, there's a little fruit at the base of the female flowers or the flowers that receive pollen as we call them these days there uh, you can see a little fruit it's like a mini version of the squash or melon mm-hmm. and so and those when the flowers finally open if there's no pollen pollen brought into that flower squash can receive pollen from the same plant but that pollen has to come from a separate flower squash have both pollen receiving and separate pollen producing flowers. And so if no pollen gets in there, the the one morning when the squash flower opens early and it's cool enough and everything's ready to go, then it will the flower will start to fade by afternoon and the flower will or the fruit will probably abort. It's just not worth it for the plant to go ahead and grow a fruit unless it's going to have at least one seed. And I've heard stories, and I don't know if anyone's ever measured this, but you know, theoretically, if only one grain of pollen gets in there, and it only produces one seed in say a whole big long zucchini or cucumber or melon or whatever you're talking about the plant knows enough not to abort but if there's no pollen gets there and there's no seeds then it will just drop off after a while so that's most likely there are other disease problems blossom end rot and other things that happen. Sometimes, you know, you can, I've seen that happen if you plants dry out way too much, or even if they have way too much water. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, I'm speaking without knowing all the details, but that's what I would try first. So what I would do is go out, go out immediately, locate which are your female flowers.
0: How do you tell the difference?
1: You look for the little fruit at the base of the stem. In other words, where that, where that flower hooks on to the vine, you will see a mini version of the fruit that you're going to be looking for later. That's just how they develop. From the very beginning, there's a, there, there's a lump. They're wider. Whereas the male or pollen-producing flowers have just really thin, straight stems. And so it's a matter of you can learn to recognize when those flowers are going to open. They start to get a little bit orange, but they're still kind of green, and they're They're, they're, pyramid-shaped. The tips are all touching together, and they're closed. And if you start to see flowers like that, go out the next morning, and they'll just start to open. And for the flowers that are just starting to open, what you should do then is find a male or pollen-producing flower that's already open. And if you look in, it looks like there's a little paintbrush in there. It'll be covered with pollen. Right. You can take one of those paintbrushes, and you can shove it into your your pollen-receiving flower and dust things around and make sure that you get, uh, that pollination takes place. And I'll bet if you do that, you'll see that you'll have way fewer of those flowers aboard.
0: Perfect, thanks for that. So you were gonna, when I interrupted you five minutes ago, you started saying another extreme.
1: (laughs) Well, the other way that weather gets extreme, and we're seeing this all over the place for different reasons, but um, seasons are coming late. We're getting unusual late frost, so you can't get things going as early. If you need to, to grow seeds, or the season ends early, you get a freak snowstorm or frost earlier than you think.
0: Or later than we think. or,
1: Or later, you know, we've had that happen also. So just, I just wanted to drop some general concepts in here about seed saving. Generally, it takes longer, sometimes way longer for a plant to produce seeds than it does to produce the fruit that we're used to harvesting. That's true with tomatoes and peppers. and They're not as extreme. Cucumbers would be a more extreme version. It takes maybe two to three weeks for peas and beans to actually dry up and mature seeds beyond what would be a green bean or a fresh pea eating stage. So from the very get-go, you're going to need more time than you would just growing the vegetable. So plan for that. And what we used to do in Idaho, where it would lots of times freeze late or freeze early, we you know we had a pretty short season. We so we had to nail it. We had to have things ready to go. We would start our tomatoes and peppers way early, say February first, and we would grow them up eight weeks before we would put them out. And then when we would put them out in this little device called a wall of water, which was a little vinyl t- teepee to protect them from those uh, those. Uh, errant and sudden frost that would inevitably come. And then by June 1st, we could take that off and we'd have a fairly mature plant on its way to producing tomatoes and and or peppers. And and then we would get mature fruits and, and peppers that even started to dry by the first fall frost, and we could actually get good seeds. So that's nice. one of the tricks. Now, if you if if you've tried your early trick and now you've got the most amazing crop on, say a beans or or tomatoes or peppers or peas, any of these crops and You come in and your wife is shaking her head going, this is not good. And you look at the weather and it's going to freeze the next morning. And you go, no, it's only August 20th. Oh, no. And so what you can do, and I've had to do this, is that you can pull, if you've got to have the room in a garage or worker or whatever, you can pull the whole plants that's what I suggest. If you want the best seed, you you go ahead and pull the whole plant. Shake the root off, the dirt off the roots and hang them upside down in your garage. I, I've strung up wires, I've had hooks or whatever. This happened to me so many times. And all that energy in the roots and the whole plant will coalesce and be used to help the plant do what it wants to do most, and that is finish
0: making seeds producing itself yeah.
1: by, by making seeds. Those are just a couple of the tricks that I've learned over the years.
0: From John Ridgefield, Washington, he said, is there an effective way to start root vegetables, beets, turnips, parsnips, etc. in a greenhouse? We have a short growing season and it really helps to set out our plants rather than seed them into the garden.
1: Wow. Well, you know, don't lump all root crops in the same basket. And I assume what you're talking about is, uh, I will assume first is just growing the roots. So that you have a short season, you just want to eat your carrots or your potatoes or your radishes or radishes aren't usually a problem
0: because they're so carrots, quick, right?
1: Yeah. You know, you can get them anyway from seed. But, you know, carrots are difficult to transplant because of the root, you know, the, the taproot. And once you disturb that taproot, it gets pretty tough to to move it, to transplant it.
0: So that was for the carrots. He said, yeah, he said beets, turnips and parsnips.
1: Here's what happens is that when you start those early from seed in trays or whatever, those roots are punching down through the bottom. That's their, you know, our, our descriptive term for them is very descriptive. And so once you try to transplant those, you've disturbed that root. And many times, if not every time I've tried this experiment where when I transplant that plant outside, one of the things I've learned to do is just put a seed right next to it. I know it's three oh. or four weeks later. You know, interesting. And I've been trying to get this stuff to go early, but I'll put a seed right next to it, and almost every time, the seed-grown plant will outperform and be earlier than than the plant that I disturbed by transplanting. Yes, you know, even though I started it early. And so, you you know, I'm I'm not saying this happens in every case, but that has been my experience. Now, if you're talking about growing those plants for seed. That's a different story. Parsnips and beets and carrots, you can actually dig up at the end of the year and look at all of them and see which ones you like best as far as size and shape. You can even, even take a little sliver out of them and taste them to see which ones are more sweet. So if you're in a place like Washington where you have a cold winter, if you'll then store those roots, cut the tops off, leave an inch or two you know, of the top on it, but trim them back And put those, we used to put them in damp sawdust in a root cellar. A refrigerator will work or whatever. If you make sure that those, you know, go through what they call a vernalization, they have a cold period, and then bring those out and plant them in your garden the next spring, then they will pop flowers and go to seed. And you can get seeds off the hand-selected plants that you were so careful
0: to select from. That's incredible. I've never heard that before.
1: Hey, well, that, you know, so, yeah, you know, all the, the three things that he mentioned are all biennials, and that's what it means. They they grow a crop, to, this root to store food the first year, and they actually produce their seeds the second year, so.
0: So I have an extreme seed story here. It's not extreme weather, but I had, <laughs> uh, yeah, I had a young man last, it's been just about a year ago. He came and helped me here on the urban farm, and I thought he was a little bit more trained than he was, and he, I handed him four or five ounces of carrot seeds that I'd saved from my front yard. Which is how, how in five ounces of carrot seeds, how many seeds is that? Oh,
1: oh. well, let me tell you, there are six hundred seeds per gram. <laughs> Twenty-eight grams in an ounce, so you can yeah, do the math. You're into the hundreds of thousands. <laughs> yeah.
0: So. I asked him to uh, plant some rows of carrots, thinking that he would, you know, put two or three seeds in a hole or, you know, 30 or 40 of them in a row. He planted all five ounces in this this bed. It actually turned out to be quite brilliant because when it came to pulling up the carrots, there was nothing there. They were, you know, so close that, and, you know, trying to thin that many carrots was futile. But what it's created is this massive amount of seeds. I'll, wow! I'll bet you I have—I don't know—I, I, you know, I'm gonna process them. But I'll bet you I end up with a pound of seeds.
1: Wow! Well, and you know what's great about—great about that, Greg—is that you know carrots are an outcrossing crop. I'm using you know seed school language here. So
0: what's so outcrossing? What
1: that means is that they, the outcrossing means they like to have pollen from somewhere else. They like to have pollen come and cross-pollinate them from other plants. And if you don't get a bunch of plants to do that, different plants, carrots can exhibit down the road you save the seeds and plant it, what they call uh, inbreeding depression. Mm, Right. So that's another big... So in other words, if you don't have enough of a population when you save seeds from flowers that have all cross-pollinated each other, then it can happen that down the line, you'll get smaller carrots that aren't, that just don't have the vitality of the plants. So in order to avoid that, you need more plants. And so what's really interesting to me about your little experiment is that you found a backyard garden way around that. If you really want, if you've got a couple of ounces of seed and you really want to save seed from that, you want it to be adapted to the conditions in your own backyard, You can do that by massively overplanting and getting, and they'll compete against each other. They'll throw up. Thousands of different flowers. All those flowers will have different genetics and cross pollinate with each other. And the, that pound of seed that you save will actually be really good seed, which is not normal in a small backyard plot. Right. Congratulations.
0: Wow, cool. Help
1: solve a problem. Awesome. That is cool. Yeah, I'm doing that with my corn this year. I planted 500 plants in an area that only holds about 100. And oh, I interesting. Did that to get more genetic diversity, in a sense, into my corn population. And I learned that from a man, Brett Baker, who lives in New Mexico, who's been in and around the Pueblo Gardens along the Rio Grande as a hobby, trying to learn how Pueblo people grow their corn. And that was just something he noticed they did, especially in small plots. He always wondered how they could avoid inbreeding depression When he only had a hundred plants. And when he started looking carefully, there was actually 500 plants. And when he was finally invited to go through some ceremonies to plant with a planting stick, he noticed they were putting three to five or more seeds down each hole. He just thought one plant had many stalks, but it turns out that they were each a different plant.
0: Oh, interesting. And so
1: It sounds like you, you did that with your carrots without knowing it. It's great. Yeah,
0: well, I didn't really do it, but it just happened. So define inbreeding depression. I don't think you've said that yet.
1: Well, you know, here's you know humans we know uh, we've all been taught that you don't marry your cousin,
0: oh right, right you
1: don't mar- you don't marry within your own family, and why is that? I mean, the genetic way of describing it is that that could allow what we call a deleterious, recessive traits to find each other in the small population and then express themselves, so you'd, you could get uh, mutations and human populations have learned that. They, they We we have this inherent urge to go outside our families and to go to new cities or to new countries or whatever to marry and have children because it's just healthier. And so that's, that's a, a simple way of explaining what happens in plants. When you don't have enough plants, it's like they're all marrying each other, they're cousins. And if there are uh, recessive traits, or are things we don't like, they could start to express. They have a greater mathematical chance of expressing themselves. I mean, mm-hmm. I could draw pictures in Seeds Bowl. We, we go into this a little bit, but just, you know, and if you look at most seed-saving books, you know, I have a little book called Basic Seed Saving and you can even get it on Amazon. I think it's a Kindle. But it tells you the minimum population numbers that you would need. Also, there's a great book out that was written by the Organic Seed Alliance and Seed Savers Exchange. I think it's called Seed to Seed. And they give you two numbers, actually, for each vegetable or grain or plant that's in this book. One is that if you're just a backyard gardener and you want to keep your population generally healthy for your needs, then you only need, say, Five to ten plants, but if you are a professional grower and you are dealing with a huge acreage of a plant where you where uniformity is at a premium, then you should probably save you know from 100 or 200 plants. I'm making those numbers up, but you get the point. And so it's really nice to kind of see that there are differences. Again, nobody knows exactly how few or how many it takes Uh, to have healthy populations. These are things that have been observed over a period of time and are worth paying attention to down the line if you want, you know, to grow and save your own seeds and adapt something to your own backyard. And maybe I'll just end with this. uh, really, I heard an incredible, so, you know, I've been growing and saving seeds since nineteen seventy nine and and had my own seed company for twenty eight years. And I just heard something the other day and this just points out how much there is to learn in this field. But um, I heard about a variety of corn that was grown in a... I'm trying to think the name of the Gulch because the corn is named after it in Idaho on the Snake River. And the story that goes with this corn is very interesting. The The, the fellow growing it lives by himself. He's way down a dirt road near the wilderness. And he saves his own corn seed from his field. And he's got a pretty large population. You know, he's got, like I don't know, 200, 500 or more plants. So that shouldn't be a problem. According to the literature, that shouldn't be a problem. After about eight or nine or 10 years of growing and saving his own seeds, he would notice that the whole field would start to lose some of its vigor it just wasn't as as tall the corn cobs weren't as big it was it looked like inbreeding depression and so what he would do what he did the first time and he's been through this three or four times he's been doing this for 40 years wow. the first time he didn't know what to do but he kind of had this intuition or somebody told him and he brought in a different variety you know
0: he like brought
1: in a, a yeah we we're, we're done marrying our cousins we're going to bring in a new family right so he brought in a different variety and mixed it in with his. then, Then he had a lot of work in the beginning because he really liked the way his corn was. And this one wasn't exactly the same. So he's getting all sorts of mixtures, but bang, the vigor in the population went up. And after about 10 years, he noticed the same thing again, and he had to bring in another variety. And after 10 years, he had to do the same thing. He brought in another variety. And so that's a That to me was really an important story for us about how to manage and maintain, you know, these varieties of things that we're trying to do. I mean, most of us don't live by ourselves. Most of us have access to seed exchanges and seed libraries. And, you know, if he he lived that way and he had given his seeds freely away, say to a seed library and other people all around him in his town had gone down and checked out some of the seeds and they were growing his corn, instead of bringing in a different variety, he could have just gone down to the library and got some more of his own variety that had been grown in different areas with different people, right? Got it. And so we can use our communities to create huge populations of things and help us manage these things into the future. And in fact, I think that's really how we got here with the vigor and the, the beauty that we have in so many of our crops. It was just built in to the culture of how we lived together and how we shared and exchanged seeds.
0: Yeah. And that's why I'm
1: such an advocate that. You know, seeds should be shared freely. That's just all there is to it. And the more you do that, the more it helps the biology the more it helps everything get better. And that's just, you know, the way it is.
0: <laughs> Yay. So I have a question from VJ from Cornelius, Oregon. Says, every year I try to save seeds from two g- new garden vegetables. This year I chose leeks and celer- celeriac. Mike, I don't know that. I don't, <laughs> I've been growing for 40 years and I know I've seen that before, but I don't know that I know how to pronounce it. Is that in the celery family?
1: It is. It's a celery that's been selected for its root,
0: Ah. a large
1: edible tuber almost, instead of the, the celery on top.
0: Celery root. Got it. So their question is, when and how will these seeds be ready to thresh? What will they look like?
1: Well, first of all, it will take both of those two years to get seed. Yep. So in other words, usually... I mean, there are you know, examples of people plant really too early or, or, or weird things happen, but generally what you want to do is grow really great leeks, really great leeks, you, and then pick out the best one and do w- what I talked about before, trim the tops, yep. maybe take a little bite out of the ones, find out which ones are sweeter, and store them in a cool place. 40 degrees is optimum, 50 will work through the winter, and plant them out next spring, And let them go to seed, and the same with the celery root. You know, I don't off the top know the numbers for the onion family, but you want to do it. You want to save seed if you want that seed to be good. You want to save seed from a number of those guys. You don't want a small population, and uh, either for celery also. And so it could be a bit of work, but good for you. I'd love to trade you for some seed. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I'm always looking for good leek seeds. And, you know, just one other tip is that Don Tipping, who lives in Williams, Oregon, and has a seed company called Fiskew Seeds, is, uh, is who I would go to ask questions about growing leek seed. I think you've got one of the country's great refer- references right there in your neighborhood. And it might be worth getting to know Don if you don't know him already with specific questions about that, but that's what I would do if I were trying to grow great league seed.
0: Excellent. So you and Bell run the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. Tell us a little bit about Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance and what you guys do.
1: Wow, I would love to. Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance is a seed conservation organization, and there are a number of seed conservation organizations around the country and more being started all the time. Why? Because if you just look at the the diversity that's planted in America's gardens and farms, it's been greatly reduced, I'll call it, lovingly in the last couple of generations. There's estimates of uh, about 90% fewer varieties of things growing in especially the world's gardens. That's a, a United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization statistic. But we've lost huge diversity. And so... As we face climatic changes and we want to strengthen our agricultural system, it makes sense biologically for us to have more diversity. A more diverse system will more likely to have something in it that will survive whatever nature is going to throw at us. And so there's this move on to save diversity. Now, what makes Rocky Mountain Seed Lines different than other seed conservation organizations is that we're not trying to save seeds bring them in and put them in a seed vault or a seed bank just to make sure they're here. What we do is spend about 90% of our energy going out and teaching everyone how to save their own seeds and uh, inspire communities to build their own seed safety backup systems. Sometimes those are seed vaults, sometimes they're seed libraries or seed exchanges. And so that's basically what we do is inspire people to get re in this. This is something that every community had a couple of generations ago, especially in America, where every farmer and gardener probably saved some of their own seeds, and many of them exchanged them and passed them around for the reasons I'd stated before. We try to educate people on how to do it and how to do it better and put you on a path so that you could actually become an expert seed saver, especially around a crop you might be passionate about. Maybe it's Route. I don't know. And then we network. We've got some pretty neat software that was developed from the Howard Dean campaign way back, the first real grassroots democratic campaign, and which allows seed stewards. These are people that have dedicated themselves to growing and sharing the seeds to at least one thing. We've got seed teachers, we've seed businesses, seed libraries. All those people can come onto our website, fill out a form for free, and then pop up on one of our directory maps. And so if somebody else is looking for any of those things, they can see a dot close to them, click on it, and get your contact information, and you guys can start exchanging information about what's particular to wherever you live, and it's different everywhere about what you would have to do to pay attention to grow and save seeds there, and the varieties would be better for you because they're grown next to you. So, this network of people can find each other really quickly, and so, in a nutshell that 's the rocky mountain sea nice we inspire we teach and we network people so that we can recreate you know the diversity that we once had, and all of our seeds in the mountain west can come from the mountain west mountain which west exactly is not the case uh, to extreme right now, so yeah
0: beautiful, plus you and I do. Uh, Seed School Online, which we're updating for this fall. So look for information on a new webinar that talks about seed saving. I can't remember what we decided to call it, but we've got a a free webinar that'll be here toward the, I'm going to guess the middle of September that you'll be able to take. And then you'll be able to look at our seven-week online new and updated Seed School that we offer through the internet. Pay attention for that.
1: Well, we, you know, we do one day, I just did a two day grain school recently. We do six day programs. We've trained more than a thousand people. We've trained over 120 teachers to start teaching their own seed schools. And um, some of those are going on now. So there's lots of seed school stuff out there, but the seed school online is really distilled. Yeah. Clear. It really was a lot of work to put that together, but it was based on 40 years of personal experience, 28 of which I owned a seed company. And then we started doing these, we've done over 40 or 50 of these seed school programs. And we learned what is important to present. We took feedback. And so all that got mixed into seven online webinars that we call Seed School Online. So it really is an amazing, I think it's an amazing achievement. Sure took a lot more work than
0: I thought. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, plus it's going to be more than seven because we've got some bonus. Yeah. You know, you and I have been working together now, what, for yeah. five or six years on doing online work. So there's the new version of our Seed School that we offer online is going to be amazing. So thank you for your work there. Any last minute thoughts?
1: You know, face into the extreme. (laughs) And what it actually is going to do is sharpen our skills and give us the chance to start selecting amazing things. What will come out of the extremities are better better vegetables that are more nutritious, that work better for us. That's the that's the magic of getting involved in seeds. Every disaster can actually be the best thing that happens to you as far as saving the seeds for something that's resistant to whatever happened to you in the first place. So I'm excited. I'm excited about all the people that are getting involved in this, how we're networking and sharing on an unprecedented level and how we're, you know, we've got a chance. We have to think that we have a chance. So
0: yeah, Awesome. 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 Thank you so much for joining us this evening, Bill. Have a great evening. As I like to say, farm out and we'll catch you on the flip side.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast.